Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Bridget. And this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. And today on the show, we're going to do a little bit of healthcare policy review. And healthcare policy has been a hot political issue south of the border most recently and is often compared to our system in Canada a more fragmented multi payer system versus one that is a single payer universal care. There's definitely a pattern amongst OECD countries to lean more towards universal healthcare administered by the government with varying financing and cost structures, but the Canadian system is not without its own problems. So healthcare costs are a huge portion of provincial budgets, and there is increasing concern that if more is not done to transform healthcare uh, alongside Canada's aging population, we could be facing unsustainable costs in trying to maintain our universal healthcare system. So high drug costs and long waiting times currently plague the Canadian system, bringing to light questions of access, efficiency, and sustainability. So what do other systems around the world look like and what lessons could Canada learn as it looks for solutions to improve its current system? And in what ways is Canada on the right path to a better healthcare system? And here to help us unpack the Canadian health system and some international health policy is Dr. Ivy Lynn Bourgeau. And Dr. Bourgeau is a professor of health management in the Telfer School of Management at the University of Ottawa, right here in the capital, and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research chair in gender, work, and health and human resources. Dr. Bourgeau leads the Canadian Health Human Resources Network and is the scientific director of the Ontario Health Human Resource Research Network. She has been a consultant to various provincial ministries of health in Canada, to Health Canada, the Pan American Health Organization, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and to the World Health Organization. Her recent research focuses on the migration of health professionals and their integration into the Canadian healthcare system. Dr. Bourgeau sits on the International Editorial Board of Sociology of Health and Illness and the Journal of Marketing and Management in Healthcare, as well as on numerous advisory committees for the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. She is the co-founder of the Bilingual Canadian Society for the Sociology of Health, and she is a recent inductee into the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences and the recipient of the 2016-2017 Award for Excellence in Research from the Association of Professors of the University of Ottawa. And with that, welcome to Policy Talks. So excited to have you on. Thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to having this conversation. And this is a conversation that we feel has been long overdue. I think health policy is such an integral and important thing for so many nations and there's so many varieties of structures and in optimizing scopes of practice produced by the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences of which you are a part of it was described that healthcare system in Canada is underperforming relative and in- to investment. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so I'm glad that you referenced that particular report. So I was in, involved with uh, with the production of that report. We had numerous conversations amongst our expert panelists who included, um, you know, physicians, nurses, um, physiotherapists, uh, practitioners, um, scientists, um, really, really uh, well-meaning, thoughtful people trying to better understand what was happening in our health system. And the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences is a group of health scientists, not just those that study um, healthcare systems or health policy. So it was very telling that they identified this particular topic, health workforce, and how to better optimize our health workforce as a critical way for us to um, improve the healthcare system, healthcare system performance, quality, and and also for it to be um, a healthy healthcare system so that um, workers uh, that are working within the system would uh, feel good about you know the work that they're doing instead of being sort of constantly uh, under stress and pressure and strain. So what do you think is a major facet when we say that the Canadian healthcare system may be underperforming comparative to the money that's put in? Specifically, we found research where there's a big comparison between Canada and Sweden and where Sweden has a similar style of system And they say, as a percentage of GDP, Sweden's paying just a bit more 
than Canada is, but is, I guess, reaping all of these benefits. Do you find those comparisons to be helpful on the broader perspective or... I think those comparisons um, can be very helpful um, to try to unpack uh, where we can improve and how we are doing relative to other comparable countries. Um, so, as you mentioned, a comparison between Canada and Sweden, um, you know, is one of those comparisons. Um, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, undertakes some comparison amongst high-income countries. The Commonwealth Foundation also undertakes um, some comparisons. Uh, it's a U.S.-based uh, foundation. And in most of those comparisons, we in Canada do underperform. Um, there are a variety of different reasons for that. Um, well, in the Commonwealth surveys, for example, we underperform in, in, uh, and we are like second last and last being the United States. That would be the so it's not the it's not the best place to be in. Um, so there there are a lot of improvements that we can make when you compare Canada to um, a country like Sweden. It's both the structure of the healthcare system the different and and how that's organized, how the different health professionals work together, what's covered, what's not covered, um, you know, the financing of that. But it all it is also, you know, broader population and community health um, initiatives, how we structure cities to be walkable, how we promote um, certain lifestyles, um, how we um, you know, look at um, equity principles um, because, um, you know, income matters. How much money you make uh, matters to your health. So it's important to look not only at the healthcare system, but the broader social, political, and economic system and how that has an impact on, on health and healthcare. Are you seeing any sort of these uh, considerations being taken into account into Canada for future planning? So you spoke of cities, you know, walkable cities, uh, these things being, you know, taken into consideration when, when, when planning um, cities and future development. I think that there is much more consideration um, towards that. I think that, for example, um, trying to improve... Um, trying to improve the walkability when you have development projects, trying to intensify um, urban centers, urban cores, so that you are um, walking to, to places. Um, so I think that there are um, some, there, there is some attention to that in terms of uh, new housing developments. Um, I think there's attention to um, the broader social determinants of health. I'm very pleased, uh, for example, that our federal minister of health um, has been saying the right words um, about the importance of uh, the broader social determinants of health. Um, but we also have to attend the, um, the amount of money going into the healthcare system that might be going into um, services that may not be delivered in the most efficient and effective way. And so um, I think that there's a lot more work that we can do with that. So it really is a multi-pronged strategy because health is such a complex phenomena and healthcare and how you structure healthcare system is incredibly complex. And we have all of these historical legacies in terms of structures that were put into place, um, you know, when we were creating the healthcare system in the 1960s and that, you know, has been kind of embedded um, into a system that seems really difficult to change. So it's not like we're starting from a blank slate. Um, mind you, all health systems um, are like that. So some countries have been able to um, get beyond those kinds of traditional log jams and make, you know, great leaps forward. Um, and so I'd be pleased to, to talk about some of those examples with you. Yeah, I mean, would you say that the Canadian healthcare system is at all resistant to reform? I think all health systems are resistant to reform. I think all systems are resistant <laughs> to reform. True. And so whenever you have um, certain people who are structured into, um, you know, particular positions, I mean, there there is this kind of inertia. Um, and so the impetus for change has to be so great to cause that um, that inertia to move. Um, so I, I, I don't think that um, healthcare is unique um, in terms of uh, its its immovability. Um, I think it has some unique dynamics and some unique historical legacies in terms of policies and regulations um, that we have in place. 
um, you know, one of the terms that I'm most tired of hearing is let's get at the low hanging fruit. Mm. And if you keep picking up the low hanging fruit, um, you know, your tree is going to rot because you're not picking from all around. Um, and when we talk about the health workforce being one of the most important inputs into healthcare in terms of finances, it's, you know, 60 to 80 percent of the cost of the healthcare budget. Um, you know, their input in terms of quality care and services. So it's not just financial inputs. They are really the most important input into our health system. And we seem to be not paying attention um, in a concentrated, open, and systematic way to how can we better structure what healthcare workers do, for whom, where, how do we get them to work together and pay you know, for them to work together um, and get them to do the right tasks. I mean, there are pretty fundamental questions that other countries have dedicated significant resources to addressing in, again, a very systematic, evidence-informed, um, a thoughtful and deliberative way. And I guess going off of that, one of the big topics of discussion that I've heard about healthcare in Canada is a fast approaching growing aging population and the facilitation that the elderly have and what that means for the healthcare system because you're essentially offsetting the ideas to offset older and like albeit sicker people as you get older and needing more care and needing more assistance with the working labor force and what do you perceive as some I guess pragmatic or most needed steps structurally to adjust to these changes? Well, that's a really important question. And, um, you know, I will acknowledge that we do have an aging demographic. Um, and they age one year at a time. Um, so it's not an aging tsunami. Um, it's more of a wave that's coming through the system. Um, for some of your listeners may have experienced the, you know, the kind of uh, the double cohort, you know, coming through high schools, you know, when we got rid of uh, uh, grade 13. Um, and it's, it's kind of similar to that, except extended over a longer period of time. <laughs> but it's, um, it's not a tsunami, it's a bulge. And um, so, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. We could have said, you know, we foresaw this, we could have started preparing for this. Um, but let's take let's take the system where it is right now. Um, so yes, I think that we need to look at when our healthcare system was structured. We had a very different demographic, and therefore we structured a system around that particular demographic. You know, as a younger population, we have a system that's really focused on acute care, not chronic, multiple chronic conditions that are more prevalent with an aging population. Um, so I think that we need to acknowledge that demographic. We need to take a step back. And I think that there have been a lot of thoughtful policy recommendations and many, many reports made. And we simply have to act on those now. Um, and they're tough decisions and, and they're politically challenging decisions um, to make. Do I think we need more money in the system? No. Do I think we need to restructure the system? Yes. Restructuring is not a fun thing. Um, and it's going to mean that there are some people who are going to be displaced to a certain extent. And there are some people, um, particular cadres of health workers, that will, that will be emphasized. Um, so we need to start working on this now. Well, we needed to start working on it yesterday and 20 years ago, but let's start working on this now. Um, I think that there is good movement in terms of focusing on, on home and community care. Um, uh, older adults, and I use that term quite specifically, older adults uh, want to be as independent and live in the community as much as possible. Um, sometimes uh, they will need to have extended care, and so we need to think about what's the appropriate level of care um, that they need. And I think the whole debate that's opened up about um, assisted dying is also about older adults making decisions um, about when enough is enough. Um, because most people die in hospital, and that's not where most people want to die. So we've, um, we've created systems that are expensive, and they're not fit for purpose, and they're not actually what um, many people want. 
And so I think that we need to have uh, an, an open and frank discussion about that. And we need to recognize that we are going to have to manage this change process um, because there are going to be some uh, workers who are displaced and some who will be em- will, who will be emphasized. Um, I think, for example, um, Canada makes poor use of a cadre of worker that many countries have, community health workers. Uh, and it gets back to our conversation about, you know, population health. And it links to, um, you know, looking at broader population of an older population. Um, you know, community health workers help people to... Um, a variety of different things. Uh, they help them be active in their community. They help to understand what is it that's going to keep people in the community. Um, just as a very specific example, I was really surprised to find so few grocery stores in Ottawa um, allow people to phone in and order. Um, and so, you know, for people to stay in their homes, um, sometimes it really is just having somebody bring buy groceries. And so I think we need to kind of, again, think about the broad range of skills that we need and resources that we need. And it may not be, um, you know, highly trained medical specialists, although we will need those, absolutely. But do we, do we have the right balance? Um, I don't think we do. And I think we really need to sort of open up that conversation. Now, a lot of the discussion also moves to this point when you talk about community-based workers in health versus a more hospitalized and rigid institutional setup, like we would say we have now, is the idea of preventative versus a triage kind of system where you approach things in a retroactive perspective. You know, you get sick and then you go to the hospital once it's bad enough. And do you go through the ER? Do you see a primary care? Do you see a specialist based on your prior experience with the medical the medical array of choices do you find that that's a distracting dichotomy that's created because it's such a complex issue or that it accurately represents a lot of challenges that you see as a scholar i think i think the latter um i think that we need to look at the healthcare system as a continuum um and that there is an appropriate place um, for very specialized tertiary care, um, as there is an appropriate place uh, for very community-based um, population health, health promotion um, activities. Um, so I think that we need to have a system that encompasses both of those. Um, and Canada has been a leader, um, particularly in policies around um, health promotion and community action. We've been a leader in policies that have been adopted in other countries, which unfortunately haven't been, haven't been um, adopted as um, robustly here. Um, but I think it is a false dichotomy. Um, I think that we need to, I think that we need to talk about um, a health system um, and that there, uh, that an element of the healthcare system is a higher level care. Um, but I, but I do think it's a false dichotomy. And the more that we move upstream, I'll give you a little analogy. And I'm not sure who to attribute this to, but I, I, I read it in a in um in an older text uh, written by um, Irving Zola, who's a medical sociologist of um of some repute. Um, had this story whereby um you know a physician was at the edge of a river. And uh, he could see that, you know, there was somebody in the river calling out to help. And uh, he ran into the river, um, you know, uh, rescued the person, brought him to shore, applied artificial respiration and revived him. And as soon as he was doing that, he heard somebody else, you know, drowning in the river and ran in to get that person and brought him back and reviving and kept on hearing, just going. And he said, I'd really like to stop and think about Um, not just who's, you know, and trying to, you know, spend all my time saving the people who are in the river. I'd like to think about upstream who's throwing them in. Mm. And that's, you know, this whole notion of focusing upstream um, is is really that point. Um, And there have been some very important um, physicians and nurses and other health professionals and, and population health advocates really pushing for this upstream. Issues like the MinCom experiment, a minimum income, you know, uh, in order to be a really sort of health-promoting uh, uh, measure. Um, and some fascinating data from the uh, MinCom experiments 
um, in Manitoba, uh, whereby the income intervention, it's considered to be a population health intervention, actually reduced, you know, levels of uh, emergency room visits. So the healthcare system is linked to broader determinants of health. So again, it speaks to that, you know, false dichotomy. So we do need to shift our focus upstream. But in order to do that, we are going to have to make some really hard decisions about a healthcare system that is consuming more and more and more of provincial health budgets that are unsustainable. And we're going to have to reach up to the highest part of those trees for the high-hanging fruit. Um, and those I appreciate are going to be politically difficult decisions, but they're ones we absolutely have to make. So you spoke of the minister saying, you know, all the right things. Um, to what extent are we actually seeing concrete action or resource allocation, perhaps, to these upstream initiatives? Um, so I think it's really important to understand the uh, the tools and resources available f- to different ministers of health, uh, to federal ministers of health, to provincial ministers of health, and then uh, in systems such as we have in here in Ontario to our our regional health authorities, our local health integration networks. So there are a variety of different um, decision makers with different uh, policy tools um, at their disposal. Um, I think it was, um, you know, to a certain extent, money talks. And if you withhold money uh, or you target money, um, that does help. Mm-hmm. Um, a really insightful comment from one of my colleagues in New Zealand, uh, Des Gorman, who led the um, the the New Zealand or uh, Health Workforce New Zealand. It's a, a an agency focused on you know trying to you know to have a much more fit for purpose health workforce um and he said that we have to acknowledge that um health workers physicians nurses all of those allied health workers in our system are very bright people and they're at the front line and they understand their context very well. They sometimes may not understand the, the broader macro context, but it's really important to um, appreciate the knowledge, the coal-face knowledge um, that they have, and um, you know to kind of let them get on with the work. Um, and so he talks about you don't want to micromanage them. You want to have Um, you have really sort of tight inputs into the system. So you have a certain budget and that's all you can do. And then you want to have, want to have really tight outcomes. You want them to make sure that they are achieving really high quality, cost-effective care. But in the middle, how you go about doing that, leave it to them because they'll know how best to, uh, organize that, um, and respond to that. Because health workers, you know, enabling them to work together to to better meet, you know, community and population health needs, that's the way that we need to go. But if you give people targets and you say, here's what we want you to reach, um, not necessarily incentivizing and micromanaging, you know, specific little tasks that we want them to do. I mean, I, I can give you lots of colleagues that you can speak to. Jerry Hurley, for example, very prominent health economist that says, you know, this kind of pay for performance measures, they don't work. We shouldn't be micromanaging them, but we should have very clear outcomes and very tight into the inputs. I mean, you know, getting back to the comments you were making earlier on, you know, we have a publicly funded health system, by and large. I mean, 70% of our health system is publicly funded, 30% privately. The part that we do privately may not be most efficient, but also the part that we do publicly may not be most ef- efficient. And so we need to have efficiencies across um, both of those. And But there's only so much that a public can pay, you know, in taxes. Um, and again, there's only so much that we can get out of our system um, if we simply put more into a system and leave it structured the same way, that's a recipe for failure and complete and utter economic disaster. Yeah. To be really honest, we can't keep doing that. We have to change the system. Um, so you spoke about the need to kind of take and f- factor into account just, just the views and opinions of the workforce because they're such a critical part of the system. Would you say that currently in Canada policy implementation is a top-down approach or are we giving, you know, kind of key actors in the workforce a bit of freedom in terms of resource allocation or are they being dictated, you know, 
where the funds are to be sent, what initiatives or programs are to be funded. Do they have any degree of freedom and to perhaps, you know, push new policies or programs or things that they feel might uh, better suit their needs? I think that specifically on the last issue, there are very innovative um, uh, health professionals out there working together. Um, and in fact, we highlight some of those in the report, uh, the Canadian County of Health Sciences Scopes of Practice report. What we found when we spoke to those very innovative models of practice is they had to find workarounds. They had to work around certain policies and barriers in order to best meet the needs of their population. And that's a tough place to be in, constantly working around something. And so that's why we said in the report, we need to kn- we need to figure out what it is that these innovators are working around and we have to change those to align better to those types of health uh, innovative models. Um, So absolutely, there are very, very innovative practices out there, and we need to better support them. And so we have to look at the structures um, that are in place. And, you know, some that are red herrings, for example. So um, we were told that a major barrier to health professionals working together in interprofessional collaborative ways um, is liability, that, you know, the buck always stops with the physician and the medical liability. And so we had, um, we contracted with a lawyer to review all case law uh, in Canada um, to show that, well, yeah, you can name anybody in a lawsuit, but actually looking at cases that have been settled, um, there is no indication that the buck stops with physicians um, and that other health professionals uh, carry um, either their independent liability or through the institutions that they're working in. And so that's a red herring. Um, funding is a big issue. Um, And so we looked at innovative practices in the United States and Sweden um, and elsewhere, and they tend to be an all-in model. That is, all health professionals are included in the budget. There isn't a specially marked budget for particular health professionals. And so having that all-in kind of budget makes you kind of step back and think about, well, who's best to do this job and how many of this particular health professional do we need? Let's look at the needs of our community and our patient population. And then uh, who do we need to hire? Like who has those skills um, to meet those those needs? And and then how are we going to pay for everybody? And in a way that's, that's uh, cost-effective yet equitable um, because we haven't touched upon how you know, the health system is incredibly gendered. Um, it's one of the most gendered workforces, um, more so in Canada than in other countries. Like the OECD average is 67% of the health workforce are women, and in Canada it's 75%. Um, so that's, you know, that's an often conversation we don't often have is bringing gender on the table, and we absolutely need to do that. Um, so we need to be uh, aware of equity, equity in terms of access for the patients, you know, uh, in terms of geographic access, in terms of, of uh, social economic access, um, access to those, you know, who have great difficulties in terms of social capital in the system. I mean, people who have mental health issues, again, a really important area to focus on that was highlighted in uh, the, the last set of negotiations between the federal government and provinces. Um, that's... That's, a, that's one of the high-hanging fruits is around mental health for sure. So we need to absolutely um, take a much more uh, integrated and concentrated focus on what are the structures that are enabling um, us to do better and what are those structures that we, mean, that we may need to shift. And anything that you need to shift, you have to consider a change management um, strategy. Um, because I don't like talking about it in terms of winners and losers. There are people that are going to have to do things differently. And you have to acknowledge that and you have to provide support uh, for that. Um, you know, so sometimes you kind of have to, you know, change the system in, in ways that are, um, you know, meeting the needs and recognizing that we need to make some in, some drastic changes, but those drastic changes are going to be displacing um, certain groups more than others, and we need to manage that process. And on that note, I think we're going to take just a little short break here at the midpoint and stick around for more policy talks.
We're back, and you're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more information, go to our website at www.policytalkspodcast.com. And we're jumping back here with Dr. Bourgeau talking about health policy, and we're going to dive a little bit more into the public versus private in healthcare. Now, before we took a moment for the break, you mentioned the 70-30 split between 70% being public spending and the 30% being private. What do you see in each of those buckets, Like, if you could describe them? Um, well, first of all, there are historical legacies as to what is included in each of those buckets. Um, so our Canada Health Act, which is a very thin um, act uh, in terms of content, um, and that's a pro and a con, um, has delineated, uh, again, reflecting the time that it was created, was to cover the most expensive um, services, hospitals, and physician services. That was by design because that was where um, it was identified that there was the least access and so very important to level the playing field. What that did is it created, and I'm not a health economist here, but um, what it did is it created... Um, uh, you know, I wouldn't say incentives, but it reduced the barriers to accessing the highest cost of care. And it made um, accessing perhaps lower cost alternatives um, less affordable because you had to pay out of pocket for it. Um, so, so there are historical legacies in terms of what is included in the 70%. Um, and so when you look comparatively at what is covered in other countries, you know, as we started at the outset, you know, our other comparator countries, um, I mean, other services uh, are, are covered uh, more extensively. Um, yes, there may be, um, for that broader coverage of services, more co-payments. So, for example, it may not be free um, at point of service. Um, but in general, um, there are systems that cover a wider variety um, of uh, health services uh, than are covered under our 71% public system um, here in Canada. Very interesting example, and one uh, that is being uh, incentivized to a certain extent in with the mental health uh, elements of the uh, federal-provincial agreements um, is coverage of uh, psychotherapy, uh, by psychologists. Um, so that is typically in the, in the 30% private. Um, and those people who have um, employment whereby they have benefits will get coverage to psychologists. There are usually caps uh, on their coverage. Um, but what we know from the epidemiological literature is that people who suffer from mental health issues may not be in those jobs that have coverage. It's not to say that, you know, people who are in, in jobs with, with, uh, with coverage don't experience mental health issues. They do. But those who have more severe forms of mental illness who could most benefit uh, from th the large bodies of evidence uh, supporting evidence-based um, psychotherapy um, um, provided by psychologists, clinical psychologists, um, and other uh, health professionals who do psychotherapy. Um, so that has been, you know, um, a, a part of our system that hasn't been sort of well aligned, you know, with the evidence. Um, and again, it speaks to these historical legacies um, that we have. Um, drugs outside of, so pharmaceuticals outside of um, <clears throat> hospitals. Um, those are also not covered. And as we um, shift the amount of time people spend in hospitals, um, you know, that shifts the cost to patients or it shifts cost to um, insurance providers. Uh, again, if you are in a job that has that type of coverage. Um, and so there have been calls to have a national pharmaceutical plan so that we have universal coverage. Um, and the, the, the economic arguments for that alone make so much sense, um, such that we have uh, proponents like Steve Morgan, a colleague at the University of British Columbia, saying, you know, the best time to have implemented national pharmacare was 20 years ago. The next best time is now. Um, so let's get moving on that. Um, because otherwise what happens is that there's no rational approach and no oversight 
to the um, to the coverage of of different pharmaceuticals um, and who uh, prescribes them to whom. Um, the whole issues that we have around polypharmacy, you know, multiple medications that our older adults are taking, um, many of which have been shown to be um, uh, contraindicating and interactive effects of which we have never tested um, in, in any experiments um, in any of the clinical trials on, on efficacy. Um, so there's lots of evidence that of, of misuse and inappropriate use. And if we had more oversight that would be afforded by a national pharmacare program, uh, we would be better off both in terms of, of cost effectiveness, but quality and safety. Um, so let's move forward on that. Uh, let's move forward definitely on, on mental health coverage of services for which we have good scientific evidence to say that this is uh, an appropriate way forward. Um, so those are a couple of uh, comments on this kind of 70-30 split and what that covers and doesn't covers and the implications of that and then linking that back to how do we fare in comparison um, to other countries that have that may have a similar percentage but cover different things um, that might be more upstream, more health-promoting, or more evidence-informed. Now, one of those kind of linkages that I see a bit loosely thrown around is the interplay between mental health and mental illness in the homelessness population. And I, my mother-in-law comes into the city and she'll talk about the Royal Ottawa Hospital. And, you know, people who have kind of a longevity of sitting in a community and seeing changes that move around. One of the big examples that is thrown around is, well, the Royal Ottawa used to have a lot more abundant services for people with mental illness. And then all of a sudden that funding got cut off about anywhere from 10 to 20 years ago. I couldn't tell you exactly and it increased the amount of homelessness on the streets because if you have a serious mental illness and you're not getting care or you don't have coverage or support, it's likely going to inhibit your job prospects or it's likely going to have these other kind of rolling effects that connect to the community development workers, to all these other social facets that we try to account for. Is that kind of a false association or is there any evidence I think to back that, up those sorts of bases that people see when they walk around? Um, I think that people are disturbed by people who are on the street who are mentally ill. Um, I'm disturbed by uh, people who are homeless who are mentally ill. I'm not disturbed by them. I'm disturbed by the circumstances by which they are there. Um, so that it's a multifaceted problem, uh, like most health problems, but it's, it's, you know, what we call a wicked problem that they, it requires a lot of different inputs. Um, so I think that we need to look at a variety of different strategies, um, housing strategies. So housing first strategies for making, making, uh, sure, um, that people are not homeless because if you are homeless, um, your life is complete and utter chaos. Whether you have good mental health or poor mental health, it is, it, it's debilitating, absolutely. So you need to look at sort of housing and then how that's linked to minimum income supports um, and how we can structure that, again, in a cost-effective way um, uh, to enable people uh, for a variety of different reasons um, have great difficulty holding holding down work. Then we need to work with employers, different types of employers, to create flexible um, uh, work accommodation. Um, and so we need to do that for people who are mentally ill. We need to do that for people who are disabled, who for people, um, you know, who are on the spectrum. Um, there are a variety of different um, people for whom we need to accommodate the work, not accommodate the people. Um, so we need to look at those inputs um, at a population um, health level. Um, and you need to have a supportive system in place. So that's like a social economic system, but also a health care system um, to enable to those folks. Um, so, you know, those folks who have persistent homelessness, who have serious mental illness, um, we do have um, really innovative practices in terms of assertive uh, act teams, sort of community treatment teams to, you know, to make sure that people are, you know, maintaining their meds. But again, you have to have some 
type of stability, you know, to maintain your meds, to know, you know, when you've taken them. Um, uh, I mean, the, the co-occurrence with addictions uh, is also another issue that we need to take into consideration. So you need a multi-pronged approach. And the way that they do, they structure these assertive community um, uh, treatment teams um, helps uh, to create some stability. Um, we don't have enough of those ACT teams, and people have to be in completely dire straits in order to qualify um, for those teams. But really important initiatives like Chez uh, Soi, La Housing First initiative, uh, like the minimum income um, experiments, uh, those need to be you know, rolled out um, in a way that's, uh, that's thoughtful and recognizing that this is a, a wicked problem with multiple causes and therefore we'll need to have a multiple um, intervention strategy that includes population health as well as health care um, inputs in terms of uh, helping manage. We're never going to solve these, but we're just going to be able to manage these um, situations better. So perhaps a slight deviation, but I find that we keep returning to these community-based models of you know community health, community care. I'm wondering if, I mean, and you've kind of hinted at it, um, if we're kind of seeing an asymmetry between rural and urban levels of support for these community health initiatives. You know, are some rural communities being left behind? Are we seeing innovation in, 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 in rural settings at all, given? I, I think that we have some very innovative rural communities, and they're innovative because they absolutely have to be. Um, you know, it's, uh, we won't see innovation where, um, where we're flush with cash. So we're not going to see innovation on University Avenue. I mean, there yeah. is innovation there, of course, <laughs> but innovations in terms of models of care, maybe less so. Um, but it's, it's absolutely, um, so do rural and remote and Northern communities, um, suffer? Um, absolutely. Is there a lack of abscess, access? Um, absolutely. Does that have healthcare consequences? Absolutely. So we need to balance that by saying, you know, some people choose to live in rural, remote, and northern communities, recognizing that. Recognizing that, um, you know, they may not um, have access. But is there a way that we could think a bit more outside of the box about better enabling access to services? Do we really absolutely have to have, you know, people face-to-face? -face? I mean, we use our smartphones for so many things now. We're so behind in Canada in terms of what we can and cannot do in terms of our health system and uh, with, uh, with our, smart, our smartphone. Um, there are, again, some really um, innovative models that really need to be scaled up um, in terms of telemedicine initiatives. Um, a really um, interesting model that started in New Mexico called Project Echo, and we have one uh, element of that program here. And again, it's trying not to necessarily say we need to have specialists in each of these communities, but we need to get the knowledge that specialists have to the practitioners who are in those communities already, whether that's a general practitioner who's in the community or a family physician, whether it's a nurse practitioner or an outpost nurse or a community health worker, um, you need to get that knowledge to them to address, you know, the issues um, in, in that are persistent in these communities. When we talk about Indigenous communities where there's very high levels of um, diabetes. How do we transfer the knowledge in terms of management of diabetes? How do we think about, again, more upstream issues in terms of what food um, is available in those communities? And how do we link that, you know, to more traditional um, foods that they that they used to have? Um, so absolutely, I think that there's a, a lot of innovation that happens in rural, remote and northern communities, because it simply has to. Can we help them? Absolutely, because they do uh, fare much, much worse. Um, and I, I, I don't think it, it's rocket science, you know, for some of these things. Yes, these are complex problems, but um, I think that we have some tools that really just need to be better utilized and upscaled um, for, for those, those uh, to solve, you know, help solve some of those issues. Going off of that, we mentioned before the idea of having your inputs and your outputs and tight constraints on those while allowing for flexibility in the middle. Do you think that the federalized state of power and decision-making that Canada has with the provinces has shown to be useful, detrimental, somewhere in the middle? Does it allow more flexibility for localized scenarios, or has it have some put up barriers? How do you view the situation as it stands? Well, I think we have to recognize that we have a federated health system. Mm -hmm. uh, that means the federal government plays a role 
in that system, and we have to also acknowledge that the federal government is uh, also manages the health system. Uh, they cover uh, Indigenous persons, uh, those who are incarcerated, uh, members of the uh, RCMP, etc. So we just need to acknowledge that the federal government cannot abdicate its role in health care. It has a role as a federal government. It also has a role as a manager of a health system. So that's really important. Um, so it needs to be at the table. Um, there needs to be uh, an acknowledgement of the role that provinces play, but that healthcare is not only a provincial jurisdiction. Healthcare is also part of the federal um, responsibilities, and healthcare is also part of municipal uh, responsibilities. And in those provinces where we have regional systems, it's part of sort of regional. So it's a multi-layered system of governance. And so we need to acknowledge that. Um, yes, there are different stakeholders, um, decision makers that have, you know, very challenging decisions to make on a daily basis. Let's make more of those um, out in the open, open and transparent um, discussions where we have people who um, can have input into it, including um, representat uh, representatives of, of different communities, a variety of different communities, different um, health worker cadres, different uh, employers, managers. Um, let's have an open and transparent dialogue about how we need to move the system. Um, we've, we've had many of those conversations. We've had commissions, uh, various reports uh, that gather dust and don't get implemented or very small elements of it get implemented. They are cherry-picked. Uh, for example, um, and that's frustrating to constantly have so much time and energy devoted to making those recommendations without us seeing sort of a follow-through um, in terms of actions. We, we must take some actions. We all have to roll up our sleeves. We all have to recognize that we, every one of us has a role to play, and we need to work together um, on that. Um, so we all need to um, to gather the strength, uh, you know, to do that and to put aside, you know, some bickering that will always happen in the politics that gets played um, because they're really, really important, uh, criti critically, um, critically important issues that we need to address. Do you think that, or I guess a better question would be, what do you think are some of the biggest political hurdles that you see or some of the biggest kind of stop lock arguments that keep it either at a stalemate, people not wanting to change because changing the status quo is going to be, even though necessary, it's painful. It's a lot of growing pains and leads to more questions than answers that politics has to address. But what do you see are kind of the biggest political stop lock arguments that are either frustrating or consuming? I, I think that we need to acknowledge that the system as presently structured um, really isn't good for anybody. Yes, there may be certain health professionals that, uh, you know, take home a lot of pay, um, but they would probably argue that, um, that their work is very frustrating. And I think that we could look at sort of better quality work life uh, for those who are funded and for those who are not funded. Um, so I think that we need to acknowledge um, that we've made decisions in healthcare that reflects a time that we no longer exist in, demographically or epidemiologically. We have a very different health status in our population, and we have a very different age uh, pyramid of our population. Um, and so I think that when people go into health professions, they are absolutely, they want to do the best thing. Um, they are altruistic, um, and sometimes the systems uh, in place get in the way of that. So I think that we need to um, go back to, um, you know, their original intent um, and have an open and honest dialogue about where we need to go um, in this country. So there are um, powerful groups that are, you know, what we refer to as structurally embedded um, within the system. Um, but I don't even think that um, members of those professions that are structurally embedded in the system are happy with the way the system is. Um, so I, th I think that we can gather everybody around the table. And if we all can agree on particular directions that we need to go, 
um, and align ourselves in those commonly agreed upon directions. Um, you know, I'm not saying that we're all going to sit around and kumbaya, agree on everything, <laughs> but we need to bring out the different interests at a table for open and transparent conversations um, about about how to move forward and then and then move that f that system forward. If we know the direction that we need to go, let's go there in a big, bold way. I suppose just my final question then, just maybe your predictions of the likelihood that we would see just this sort of optimization or evolution in the next decade. Um, it's really hard to be optimistic <laughs> sometimes, you know, having studied this for such a, a long time. But, the th but what makes me optimistic about this is that I have looked at other systems that have made great leaps forward. And yes, they have been painful. And yes, there have been problems. But they have made great leaps forward. And so we need to absolutely do that. We need to realize that we may make some mistakes in that. But the status quo is unsustainable. You know, we can't keep digging this hole with the same shovel. We're going to have to kind of jump out of this hole as best we can. Well, we'll hope for the best. I think uh, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you very much for joining us and sharing your perspective on what has proven to be a very complex issue. Thank yep. you for the invitation. And thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. So as always, this episode has been a collective effort. We want to send out a quick thanks to our research team who put this together. Uh, Mark Hyken, Rianne Foley, Josiah Witherspoon, our technician Megan Boisjoli, and our wonderful producer Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Matt. And I'm Bridget. This is Policy Talks.